Well, Martin Luther, as you know, sparked the Protestant Reformation by rediscovering the truth of the gospel, that we are saved or justified by grace through faith alone, apart from the works of the law. No one is justified by doing good works or keeping God's law. But that went against the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church, which taught justification by faith plus works. You very much need works to be saved, they said. And so the Catholic Church condemned Luther's teaching on salvation by grace alone. You can't just throw out works and the works of the law. And so they accused these new Protestants of being antinomian. The word comes from the Greek anti, against, namas, law, against the law, lawless ones. Catholics claim that anyone teach, accepting this teaching of salvation by grace apart from works was antinomian. And pretty soon they'd be, you know, falling off the deep end of sin and doing anything to reject God's law like this in favor of grace alone. That's going to result in spiritual anarchy where people think they're, they're free to do whatever they want. And of course, that's not the case, but that's what they claimed. Instead, the Bible teaches we are saved by grace through faith alone, apart from works. The law cannot save anyone because no one keeps it perfectly. And so we're very thankful that salvation comes by God's grace alone. But how we live still matters. Our behavior still matters. It doesn't contribute to our salvation, but it should result from our salvation But still, this hasn't stopped countless people from claiming that we Christians who have a a high and an accurate view of God's grace and salvation are antinomian. We're we're lawless. We're lawbreakers. And why do I bring this up? Well, we've been studying God's law lately. And last week, we discovered that Scripture teaches we are no longer under the law. The law of Moses, that is. The law of Moses with its 613 commands dominates the Old Testament, but that is no longer the law for God's people. It was given as a whole to Israel, and it was fulfilled as a whole by Christ. So it's no longer binding on our lives, and it's no longer the expression of how God wants his people to live. But when people hear this teaching, which last week we found it's so clear in the New Testament. Nonetheless, they're, they're quick to sing the same tune that we're antinomian. We're, we're against God's law. We're lawless. You know, if you throw out the law of Moses, pretty soon you're going to be off the deep end in, in sin. Spiritual anarchy will result. But this too is false. For while it's true that we are no longer under the law of Moses, that doesn't mean we're lawless. That doesn't mean we're without Law, we still have a law, a law which we are under that guides and directs our behavior. It's just that that law is no longer the law of Moses. It is now called the law of Christ. And understanding this new law is going to be our focus for this morning. I'll back it up a little bit because in case you haven't been here the past two weeks, you're going to be lost and we're studying James chapter 2 right now. And pretty soon we're, we're getting ready to, to delve into this huge passage where he teaches on faith and works. And James tells us works matter. Works matter a lot. They don't save us. They don't replace our faith, but they demonstrate our faith. But we've been asking, now what works are we even talking about? How about keeping the Sabbath? 
Is that one of these good works? That used to be a good work God required of his people. Is it still? Or how about abstaining from unclean foods or tithing or sacrifices? What are we talking about here? Has God given us direction on how we are to live before him? Yes, of, of course he has. It's in his word and his law. That's, that's what his law is. It's the revelation of his will for his people. The problem though is it just, it seems like his law has changed. That's just irrefutable if you read the New Testament. Things have changed. Sabbath worship is gone. The sacrificial system is gone. The priesthood is gone. Unclean foods are gone. But we're still told that murder, adultery, and theft, those are still wrong. So are these holdovers? What, what's the deal? Has God's law changed? Has some been replaced? And if so, which parts? Most Christians default to a, a basic pick and choose mentality when it comes to the law of Moses. I mean, they tithe because the Old Testament says to tithe. But the same law that says to tithe also tells us to not wear clothes woven together from multiple fabrics. And they safely ignore that law, though. You know, in reality, all attempts to divide up the law of Moses and pick and choose which parts are still in effect fail. The simple fact is the New Testament views the law of Moses as a unified whole. It's one unified law for Israel before God. So either the whole thing is still in place and you're under the whole thing or you're not. It's all fulfilled. It's it's take it or leave it. And as we studied last week, the New Testament says, leave it. Not in a bad way. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's just, it's been fulfilled. The law is not erased, but it is replaced. And so we learned we're not under the tutor of the law. We've died to the law. We've been set free from it. Now we're led by the spirit. We don't walk in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the spirit. The law of Moses has been fulfilled. The old covenant has passed away, new things have come, and that comes with the change of law. No one's throwing out the Old Testament, it just no longer directly applies to us because we're not national Israel living in the land under the Mosaic covenant. Just things have changed with the coming of Christ. Something you just need to understand and wrap your mind around and, and how things change. The old covenant has been replaced by a new covenant. Moses, as mediator for God's people, has been replaced by Christ as mediator for God's people. And so naturally, the law of Moses, which corresponded to that covenant, has been replaced by the law of Christ, which corresponds to the new covenant. So it's not, it's not that complicated when you put it all together. Nevertheless, most Christians I talk to, they've never heard any of this. It's confusing. It's bewildering. They don't quite get it. Most live in complete ignorance of their relationship to God's law, which can get them in some trouble here and there. But it's a big deal. Our relationship to God's law, his will for how we should live, that's kind of a big deal. You should probably have that figured out, that you know how to read your Bible and what applies and what has been fulfilled. That's why we're studying all this. Last week, we labored to show you from Scripture that we're no longer under the law of Moses, not any part of it. And now today, we want to complement that message by also showing you that that doesn't mean we're lawless. We still have a law that we're under. It's the law of Christ. 
And you need to understand this new law and our relationship to it just as much. And that will be our our labor for this morning. I'll give you the same disclaimer as last time. It's not going to be an ordinary Sunday morning sermon per se, more of a, a teaching time. But I don't apologize for that because the church needs to be taught the full picture of God's word and his will for his people. And so I trust and hope this equipping on God's law will pay dividends for you in your Christian life for years to come. Without further ado, we're going to use that same Q&A format from last week. So just to help you understand this issue, let's, let's answer four questions to help you understand the law of Christ. We did that last week, the law of Moses. Now, four questions to help you understand the law of Christ. First off, number one, how did Jesus view the law of Moses? Back it up a little bit. How did Jesus view the law of Moses? Bring Christ in the picture now. And first, we need to establish that Jesus was not antinomian. He's not against the law. He was against the man-made laws of the Pharisees. But he was very much in favor for God's law, which at the time was the Mosaic law. He was a Jew after all. But that said, Jesus carried a very distinct perspective on the law. He always viewed the law of Moses as something he needed to fulfill. He had a mission. Turn to Matthew chapter 3. We'll, we'll start here. And actually, I'm going to leave you in Matthew most of our time anyway. So Matthew chapter 3. You remember how Christ's ministry officially began with his baptism by John the Baptist. But when John sees Jesus, he basically says, hey, wait a second. You should be baptizing me. John was giving a baptism of repentance for sin. Jesus had no need for such a baptism. Nevertheless, Jesus said this in response, Matthew 3, verse 15. He said, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus was baptized by John for a few reasons. It validated John as a true prophet sent by God. Also, Christ was identifying with the sinners he came to save. But in general, his concern was to fulfill all righteousness. This was simply God's will that he had for the son to do. And Jesus came to do that will. Now, you might wonder, fulfill all righteousness. I thought Jesus was already righteous. Well, he was obviously in his essence, righteous, but living on earth as a man, Jesus needed to demonstrate perfect righteousness. He needed to provide a record of perfect obedience to the will of God or the law of God. As our new head and redeemer, Christ had to actually succeed in all the places where Adam failed. He came as the second Adam to succeed where Adam failed. And that included living in complete obedience to the will of God, which, which is the law of God. This is called the active obedience of Jesus. And this was part of his mission. Now, how would you answer the question, why did Jesus come to earth? You would say, well, to, to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, that we could be forgiven. And that's absolutely true. Jesus died the death that we deserved. But that's not all. Do you realize Jesus also came to live the life we failed to live? 
He came to live a life of perfect righteousness or perfect obedience to God's law. That he might be our perfect representative. And that he might grant to us perfect righteousness, which we need. So this is why Jesus said so many times that he came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father, the will of the one who sent him. And is not the will of God, like we've been studying, the same thing as the law of God? Jesus came to perfectly keep God's law, God's will. How does this relate to the law of Moses? Well, it just so happened he was born a Jew. That was on purpose. That meant he was born under the law. And so if he was going to fulfill all righteousness, if he was going to fulfill that old covenant, that meant Jesus had to keep that law of Moses perfectly. Jesus came to do for us what the law could not do. So listen to Romans 8, 3 and 4. I read it before, but just listen to Romans 8, 3 and 4. It says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. The law of Moses could not give us forgiveness or righteousness. Why not? It says because of the weakness of our flesh. Because of our sin natures, all it could do is condemn us. We can't keep this law. But God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh, meaning he came as a true human, but without a sin nature. And Jesus both died for us and he lived for us. Why? He says, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What's that requirement? Perfect Righteousness, perfect obedience. All this goes to say, Jesus very much had to be born under the law of Moses if he was going to fulfill it. And he had to keep the whole thing. He had to keep the law of Moses to perfection, without sin, without stumbling, that he might fulfill the law of Moses on behalf of God's people who could not keep this law. So all this just gives us a framework for understanding a key verse. You ready for a key verse on Jesus and the law? Just go to Matthew 5. Just flip the page. Matthew 5 and look at verses 17 and 18. You'll, I'm sure, immediately recognize these verses when you see them. Matthew 5, verse 17. In the Sermon on the Mount now, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus came to fulfill the law of Moses. How? Well, that'll be our second question. How did Jesus fulfill the law of Moses? How did he view the law? Something he needed to fulfill. So question two, how, how do you do that? How did Jesus fulfill the law of Moses? He says it pretty clearly here. He did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. So what does that mean? 
This word for abolish, kataluso, means to loose, to destroy, to dissolve. Word was used of the destruction of the temple or the perishing of the body at death. And so Jesus came not to do that to the law. He did not come to erase the Old Testament. We are not to tear the Old Testament out from our Bible. Jesus did not come with a contrary relationship to the law of Moses, but with a complementary relationship to the law of Moses to fulfill it. Notice here in his teaching, the law is a unit, right? Either it's all in place or it's all been fulfilled. He says, like, not the smallest stroke will pass away from this law until it's all accomplished. There's no picking and choosing which parts of the law of Moses still apply. Either you're under the whole thing or Jesus succeeded in his mission to fulfill the whole thing. And that's what he did. So how did he do that? Word for fulfill here, plerao, that's a, a huge word in Matthew's gospel. It means to accomplish an end, to make something perfect or complete. And so again, let's ask, how did Jesus do that concerning the law of Moses? How did he render the law complete? Well, let me suggest three basic ways Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses. First, Jesus fulfilled the promises of the law. The promises. This applies to the law and the prophets, both of which are are filled with numerous promises of a coming Savior who would do for God's people what the law could not do for God's people. The law and the prophets promised there would be a coming prophet, priest, and king who would deliver God's people. And Jesus is that prophet, priest, and king. He's the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah. And countless prophecies and promises find their fulfillment in Christ. And so it's no wonder that after the resurrection, Jesus shows up with the disciples. And the whole time they've been so clueless to so much. But he clues them in and he says this, Luke 24, 44. He says, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then it says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It was all pointing to him, including the law of Moses. He was there and he's come to fulfill it all. And he finally opened their minds to see Christ in the law. Jesus also said this, this is John 5, 39 and 46. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's these that testify about me. And they said in verse 46 of John 5, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. But I don't know, think about that. Christ is saying Moses was writing about him and indeed he was. The promise of the Messiah is is all over the Old Testament. And Jesus came to fulfill all those promises. So first, he came to fulfill the promises of the law. Second, Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law. The demands. Like we mentioned earlier, what did the law of Moses demand? Perfect righteousness. Perfect obedience. Just obey God's law perfectly. And you'll be fine. That's all you have to do. You'll be blessed. 
Now realize, the law can't save anyone. Keeping the law can't give you salvation. If you're already fallen, it can't give you salvation. But also understand, like, if you, if you never sinned, and if you perfectly kept God's law from birth, you wouldn't need salvation. You would be perfectly righteous. So in that way, the law can show us life, but it can't actually give us life. And of course, none of us meet its demands. We have transgressed. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was trying to show the people that they fell short of the perfect righteousness required by the law. Look at verse 19, if you're still in Matthew 5. He said right after this, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. While the law is in effect, if you break even the least of these commands, you're guilty. You're out. You need to keep all of them. The standard is high. And in case you're unclear on the standard, he says in verse 20 to clarify, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Forget about being least. Like you're not even getting in unless you're way more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. That was meant to be a mind-blowing statement to them because the Pharisees, they were the most righteous guys around. It was all external. Their hearts were wicked, but they still were the most righteous guys around. And Christ is saying that's, that's not even enough. That they're not even close. External obedience is not enough. The standard includes internal obedience and perfect obedience at that. And no one keeps that standard. And throughout the rest of the chapter, Christ goes on to show and quote several Old Testament commands that we all break internally, externally. No one meets the standard of righteousness of the law. We don't measure up. And in case this point is still not clear, how does he wrap up this first segment of teaching in the Sermon on the Mount? Verse 48. At the end, he says, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Just be as perfect as God. That's all you need to do. That's all the righteousness you need. Just as perfect as God. And the will of God for you, the law of God says, just be perfect. But no one obviously meets the demands of this law. That's why we're only condemned by the law. And we're under the curse of the law, which is death, separation, eternal death. But now you see, Jesus came to fulfill those demands, the demands of the law of perfect righteousness among God's people. We already studied Galatians 3 in the weeks gone by where it says we've been cursed by the law, but Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, dying on the cross. He suffered the wrath of God, which we were due, and the penalty demanded by the law. And so he redeemed us. But also consider, excuse me, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Just listen, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. And Paul said later, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born under a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. 
So like in the time of God, Jesus came. He sent the son born under a woman. He came as a man born under the law, under this law of Moses. And then he lived in perfect obedience to this law. He met its demands. He fulfilled all righteousness. He displayed perfect righteousness. And this enabled Jesus as the God-man to, to function as our perfect substitute, our redeemer. And so it's through him that God can accept him on our behalf. That's how we receive adoption as sons and daughters, through him, through the son of God. So you see, Jesus fulfilled the demand of the law on our behalf. It's the demand of perfect righteousness and obedience. And now he can give us that perfect righteousness as a gift by faith. And that's how we're made right with God. So secondly, Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law. Lastly, Jesus fulfilled the purpose of the law. We're asking how he fulfilled this law of Moses. He said he came to fulfill it. Well, third, he fulfilled the purpose of the law. Remember, we define the law of God as the revelation of God's character and God's will. Well, with that in mind, listen to what John said about Jesus at the beginning of his gospel, John 1, 17. Just listen. He said, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. What an interesting contrast between Moses and Jesus. Law versus grace and truth. The law of Moses was not strictly grace. It was a revelation of God's holiness and his standard. God always saves people by his grace. But that's why salvation is not by the law. The law only shows people their need for grace. does not actually give them that grace. But Jesus does. He came to give us grace. He came to bring to completion the tutor of the law, leading us to salvation by grace through faith in him. Jesus is grace personified. He's also truth personified. And there was plenty of truth in the law of Moses, but it was not the full revelation of God's character and will. It was a partial revelation, a shadow of things to come. But Jesus came as God's revelation incarnate. Was he not the perfect revelation of God's character and God's will? And that's why John said in just a few verses before, in John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. God's glory was revealed in the law of Moses, but in a veiled way. But Jesus comes to fully reveal that glory of God. And this is why we find that everything in the Old Testament points to him. By design, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, the temple, the feast, the Passover, just go down the list. They all point to and find their fulfillment in Christ. We would say the greatest purpose of the law of Moses was to point to Christ. The law was a shadow of good things to come. Hebrews 10, 1. Well, well, he's come. The good thing has come. He's, he's here. And so in these ways, Jesus succeeded 
in accomplishing or fulfilling the law of Moses. This is why we're no longer under that law, like we affirmed last week. And so it's only natural then that that old law, which has been fulfilled, is now replaced by a new law that Christ brings. And so now we can ask question number three. What is the law of Christ? We'll finally get to it. What is the law of Christ? We learned a lot from Galatians last week about the law of Moses. Paul showed how the law of Moses doesn't direct us to salvation. It never did that. But also now the law of Moses no longer guides our actions directly. We've been made to die to the law. We've been set free from the bondage of the law. The promise of Christ and the spirit have come. And so he culminates his argument in Galatians 5, 18. You remember, he says, if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. If you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And he's talking about the law of Moses. Now that's Galatians 5. Begin to Galatians 6, the final chapter. He's kind of wrapping it up. He gets into some practical application. And he says this, Galatians 6, verse 2. He says, bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. That should make you pause. Like, wait a second. Didn't he just spend like the whole book showing us, convincing us we're no longer under the law? We're free from the law, right? Well, yeah, we are, but the law of Moses. It doesn't mean we're free from all law. We still have a law. We're not antinomian. But this law is called what now? The law of Christ. And notice he tells us here now, we are to fulfill this law. That's on us now to fulfill, to carry out this law, to bring its intent to completion. We'll see how this law is centered on love, love for God and love for others. That explains the connection here to bearing one another's burdens. That's an expression of love for others. But in general, see now how Paul expects that Christians are to be directed by the law. It's not the law of Moses. We are now directed by the law of Christ. And that law tells us, for example, bear one another's burdens. So we will keep that command, so to speak. But see how Jesus has replaced Moses as the new lawgiver for God's people. Remember, law is just the will of God revealed. He's showing us God's will for us in the church. He's the mediator of a better covenant. He's also the giver of a better, more complete law. The law of Christ, therefore, consists of God's will for our lives under this inaugurated new covenant. He has inaugurated the new covenant. And so we have a new law. So what exactly is contained in the law of Christ? So like, what does it consist of? Well, it consists of the example and teaching of Christ as he is incarnate, the will of God and the revelation of God, the character of God. So look to Christ's teaching and example. It also consists of the inspired teaching of Christ's representatives the apostles, who further communicated God's will for the church. You know, starting with Jesus in Matthew 5 here, it's a perfect example. 
You know, look at verse 21. We read the verses before, 17 through 20. And after this, in the rest of the chapter, he goes on to give six examples of God's greater standard. You know, that standard of perfect righteousness. And he says each time, basically, you've heard that it was said. The ancients said this, and then he goes on to quote an Old Testament command. And then he doesn't overturn the command, but he further expands on its significance and practice and typically focusing on the internal dimension of the command. God looks at the heart. He's after obedience inside and out. And so we find here, this is the teaching of Christ with authority and his standard. It's actually a higher standard than the law of Moses. I mean, you thought it was hard to keep those 613 commands of the law of Moses. The law of Christ is harder. It's a higher standard because it governs not just your actions, but your your heart, your attitude, your will, everything. So verse 21, we learn it's wrong to murder. It's still wrong to murder, but you must also not even get angry with another. In verse 27, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. It's one of the 10 commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's still wrong to commit adultery, but Jesus reveals the greater intent of God for righteousness in our lives. And this means that, look, for example, the heart behind adultery, that's just as sinful as adultery. And so it goes throughout the rest of the chapter. And so what we find then, the law of Christ, that the revelation of Christ, it's a, it's a greater standard of righteousness for God's people. It governs their actions and it governs the heart attitude behind their actions concerning God's eternal moral standard. Now, along those lines, let me just explain one key issue concerning the relationship between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. We've said over and over, we're no longer under the law of Moses, not any part of it. People hear that, they always ask, what about the Ten Commandments? Aren't those like eternal? Are you saying if we're not under the law of Moses, those were part of the law of Moses. So like, is it okay to murder now and commit adultery? Obviously, no. Jesus just reaffirmed those are still sins. But answer this. Why are murder and adultery still wrong for us in the church? They're wrong for us, not because the law of Moses says so, but because the law of Christ says so. That's why they're wrong. Because you realize there were a lot of things in the law of Moses that used to be wrong for God's people that are now no longer wrong for God's people. Like eating pork, no longer wrong. And that's because much of the law of Moses did not represent the eternal, unchanging moral will of God. A lot of it was cultural for national Israel, like eating pork. God didn't have anything inherently against pigs, like they're a lesser creature per se. Just says, you know, filthy as a cow. He just wanted Israel to be set apart and different. But murder and adultery, that's different. Those are eternally wrong. Why? Well, that's not loving your neighbor. 
And idolatry, blasphemy, those are eternally wrong. Why? That's not loving God. God has an eternal standard of right and wrong that's based on his essential character. And that part never changes. Some of that standard came through in the law of Moses. And this is why we find some overlap between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. This is why nine of the 10 commandments are repeated in the new Testament, everything but the Sabbath command. All the places where the law of Christ overlaps with the law of Moses, we still obey, but not because Moses tells us to because Christ tells us to we're under the law of Christ. Jesus reveals the greater and lasting will of God for his people. Example will help. Just one example. Just think about this idea of jurisdiction. We learned last week, right? We're no longer under the jurisdiction of the law of Moses. You know, it used to be illegal to turn right on a red light in Massachusetts. Legal here in California. I'm thankful. Do it all the time. I don't want to wait. But in both states, it's still illegal to drink and drive. Both states. So if you lived in Boston, you'd be under the jurisdiction of which law? Massachusetts law. And therefore, if you turn right on a red light before 1979 or whatever, you'd be breaking the law. But now let's say you move to California. Now you live under the jurisdiction of California law. You are not under the jurisdiction of Massachusetts law at all. Not a single bit. You don't live there. So in California, now because you've moved, you're free from that restriction. You, you can now turn right at all the red lights to your heart's content. You're free. But you know what? You still can't drink and drive. Why not? I thought you're free from the entire law of Massachusetts. Well, you are, but that just so happens that's still illegal in California. California law says you still can't do that. And so it goes with the law of Moses and the law of Christ. We've moved The people of God have moved. We're no longer living under the law of Moses. And so we're free from that law, the whole thing. And things are very different now, living under Christ. But, you know, you can expect some areas of overlap. They're going to overlap when it comes to God's eternal moral will. What are the areas of overlap? Just read your New Testament. You'll find out. The areas of overlap concern God's unchanging moral standard. I'll give you one example. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Paul tells us, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Just one list. Those things all still apply. And the bottom line is this, though. The New Testament is the full revelation of God for life under the new covenant. This is how we are to live now. This is why the teaching of Christ and the apostles, that now for us, that's like the letter of the law. And this doesn't mean we throw out the Old Testament with all of its laws. It just means those apply to us now in principle, not in rule. And if you just want further support that the law of Christ, the teaching of Christ is our authority now, just look at how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount. Go to Matthew 7. Matthew 7, he finishes up. And how do the crowds respond? Verse 28, 
When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He basically is saying, thus saith the Lord, based on his own words. He set up his own teaching as the new authoritative standard for the people of God. It doesn't go against the old law. It's complementary. It's just new revelation. His word became the law. If you still don't believe me, turn to Matthew 28, the very end, very last verses of Matthew. If you can't tell, Christ's relationship to the law is a key sub-theme in Matthew's gospel. And look at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, and 20, even verse 18. All, and Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He has all authority. What, is he, what command does he give with that authority? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And though I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, did you catch that? I mean, that, that's huge. He's created the church. It's about to begin when the spirit comes. He gives this standing commission and he says his new disciples, they're not commanded to observe all that Moses commanded, but now they're told to observe all that Jesus commanded. Do you see how Jesus sets himself up as the standard, his teaching, his example, that that's like our law now. We follow him. It's not against, it's complimentary, but we, we just follow him. He also said things like this, John 13, 34. He told the disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now Jesus is issuing new commandments. You may think that's not a new commandment. The command to love one another, that's from the Old Testament. And it is, but do you see how he expanded it? It's not just love one another. He sets himself up as the standard for love. So the command is love one another, even as I have loved you. He's now the, the standard. He's the law. It's the law of Christ. And speaking of love, Jesus said the whole law and prophets are fulfilled in the word love, the command to love, to love God, to love others. And so it only makes sense now that as Jesus came to fulfill the law and prophets and usher in a new covenant, new law, it would likewise be characterized by love. And it is. You just fulfill these two commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. The two commandments of the law of Moses and you'll do well. You have no other need for another command. Just do what that says. Now, granted, keep in mind, God still defines love and what it means to love God and to love your neighbor. As much as our society wants to redefine love, we don't accept that. God defines that. And the New Testament spells out what it looks like to truly love God and to truly love your neighbor. But just let these be your guide and you will be fulfilling the law of Christ. Well, we need to wrap it up. Let's finish with a final question. A final question here, number four. What is our relationship to the law of Christ? Just to, some final clarification. 
We've learned what the law of Christ is. So now what exactly is our relationship to the law of Christ? Listen to another verse. It's 1 Corinthians 9, 20 through 21. Paul, he's talking about preaching the gospel to different types of people. And he says this, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. Now that verse, it just confirms everything we've been studying. Here is Paul and he he was a Jew, but now in Christ, he no longer considers himself as being under the law of Moses. That doesn't mean he can't still use it for strategic evangelism purposes. So if he's going to share the gospel with some Jews at synagogue, he's not going to bring a hot dog with him and unnecessarily offend them. He, he can still observe some parts of the law. No problem. That doesn't mean he's under the law. He's not under the law. So all that should make perfect sense now if you've been with us. But then he says this right after in verse 21. He says next, to those who are without law, he became as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. Now here, Paul is talking about ministering to Gentile pagans, and they don't have any law. They don't have law of Moses. They've got the law written on their hearts, but otherwise they're lawless. And what he means here is, hey, look, if they offer him a hot dog, he'll eat it. He is free to adapt to their culture. He can, to a degree, be like them, to minister to them for strategic purposes, but only to a degree. He can't adapt to their sinful ways because although they're lawless, he's not lawless. He's not under the law of Moses, but he still has a law. He's still under, he says, the law of Christ. And so he can't act truly lawless to minister to lawless people because he's still under the law of Christ. And that, that doesn't change. And so it goes for us now, for all of us in the church, you're under the law of Christ. You're bound to keep the law of Christ. In Christ, we have liberty from the old ways, culturally, especially. Well, that does not give us a license to sin. This is not freedom to sin. We're still under the law of Christ. And that law directs us and guides us Unto how we live. It shows us what sin is and binds us under that law. Now, keep in mind, the, the law of Christ doesn't save us. We're not saved by keeping the law of Christ. No, no law keeping ever saves anyone. Salvation is still by grace through faith in Christ alone. But the thing is, coming to Christ in salvation as Lord It just means now you're under his law and this is your guide, your guide for how to live, how to please God, how to grow, how to be blessed. And keep in mind and be thankful, his law is no burden. The law of Moses was a huge burden because the people could not keep that law. But we are enabled to actually obey this new law by the Holy Spirit. In salvation, God even changes our hearts and desires such that now if you're a true disciple, you want to walk in his ways. You desire to keep his law. You love his law. Yes, we still wrestle with the flesh, but you now truly believe his ways are best. And so we find that his law actually sets us free 
from sin, from shame, guilt, fear, death. It's why it's called a law of liberty. His, his burden is light. His yoke is easy. It is good to be under the law of Christ. It's freeing. It's a law of liberty. In fact, speaking of that law of liberty, I think we can now finish and come full circle by going back to the letter of James. It's where this all began. Because James had a lot to say about the law of Christ. That's what started this all. I'll just remind you, he told us back in James 1.22 to be doers of the word, not hearers only, who delude themselves. See, we need to live out God's word and God's will. But what's that word though? Well, like I said in verse 18, it's the same word of truth that saved us. It's the gospel. He also said in James 1.25, he says, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, having not become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. James is speaking here of the law of Christ. This paradoxical law of liberty that binds you, but it sets you free at the same time. And if you do it, you're blessed. You must do it though. And if you keep this law, you will be blessed. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do this, you will be blessed. Along those lines, he says in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. And then he says in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are going to be judged by the law of liberty. They will be judged by the law of liberty. He's still talking about the law of Christ. This law directs us. It guides us. It's our standard of righteousness by which we will be judged. You'll be held accountable for how you measured up and lived according to this law, the law of Christ. And the good news is, as we learned, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is not a judgment of salvation. This is a judgment of rewards. But now internally and externally, we are compelled to obey this law, the law of Christ. We do so because we want to, because we love the Lord, our Savior who died for us. He's given us the Spirit. He's made us new, given us eternal life. We now obey the way it's been intended from the inside out. We love his ways. We love his law. It's good. It's righteous. And as we obey with a willing heart, God is glorified. And James says, you'll be blessed. You're doing well. You'll be blessed in what you do. This is how we relate to this new law, the law of Christ. And so now you just need to make sure you're a doer. You're a doer of the word. You're a doer of the law, the law of Christ. It's God's will for the church. And after all, James says next in chapter 2, that the one who has faith, but no works, that person's still lost and dead. And now you know he's not talking about works of the law of Moses. He's talking about works of the law of Christ, loving God, loving your neighbor. And the Christian who has faith but is missing all the works is not obeying the law of Christ. That Christian is likely not a Christian. And what's left for us now is to see just how vital these works of Christ are to our faith. 
in Christ. And that is what we will do next time. Let's pray. Our God and Savior, we do thank you and we do praise you for being our God and our Savior. We confess with the law that you are holy and righteous and good and and your law is holy and righteous and good, but you gave your people a law that they could not save them, that could not do anything for them because we are all here sinners, condemned, transgressors. We fall short. We are not perfectly righteous, Lord. We deserve, deserve judgment, but we thank and praise you because you sent Christ, the Son of God, born under a woman, born under the law, yet God incarnate, to do for us what the law could not do. He condemned sin in the flesh. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He lived a life of perfect obedience and did so all for us and that we could be forgiven and that we could be given the righteousness that the law could never give. We thank you, Christ, for your sacrifice and for your gift, the gift of grace that you give. It's the gift of life and forgiveness and newness. And now you call us to yourself to walk in your ways. You enable us to do so. And I pray we, we just learned this today. We, we've heard some teaching and we need to hear. But now we need to, to apply. We have a law, a law of Christ that guides us and shows us how we do honor the one who, who saved us. And I just convict our hearts to now be doers of this word, to live out your law. And make sure we do it from a heart that loves you, Lord. I pray for those here who... They see the Christian life as a chore, a begrudging list of commands, a burden. I pray you bring them to the truth, Lord, either through genuine salvation or through just an awakening to see your your words are life. Your way is best. And Christ really is the way, the truth, and the life. And, And so may they go after him with a joyful heart. In this, you're glorified. In this, we're blessed. And so may this be our way. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.